0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
0: I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental things uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24 year old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry you got to marry the man, marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here. And then all of a sudden, we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So it It might be a myth to just automatically push marriage now we should probably be pushing well, let's not get pregnant, right That should be pushed, but again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or you know things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant. One of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one on one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's these are all important parts of the decision, and. There are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out – so, you know, it used to make more sense and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture, we were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city difficult financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage, um, if if that has to happen as well, so let me give you some other things we want to blow up. A few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a I am a realist though, and um, to think that it's the answer. Sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's, it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what, what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first, and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is, not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship just like you know uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization for your uh, immunology your ability for your immune system to be strengthened you need a resistance right you need to have something fighting against you the same is true in our marriages whenever somebody tells me we never fight i don't think oh they're healthy i immediately think well how is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage, Um We've kind of already talked about the fact that uh, you know in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex. And they're actually having better sex, as they would rate it, than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are, uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But forty-three uh, percent said that of the singles, um, women who were ages between the ages of twenty-five and twenty-nine reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex. Uh, having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, Another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's, It's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things. That is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married Simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, from the white picket fence, the red shutters on the window, maybe a wraparound porch with a rocking chair, everyone has an image of their dream home. And for decades, owning a home has been a major status symbol uh, for most Americans. It's usually the most important and largest financial investment of their lives. It also provides uh, individuals and families with a sense of community. However, how have our nation's various housing crises changed the meaning of homeownership, and how has the need for a perfectly crafted community become the source of residential segregation? Joining us today is Dr. Brian McCabe, author of "No Place Like Home: Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Homeownership." Dr. McCabe analyzes the challenges of homeownership as it continues to, uh, you know, be the main driving uh, wealth driver in the United States. He's here today on the phone to talk with us about uh, this ideology of homeownership and community. Dr. Brian McCabe, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey Matt, thanks for having me. Great to have you. Talk to me about uh, your book. Um, your you. It sounds like Dr. McCabe, you're questioning homeownership, which is like a staple of uh, of Americana, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, it sure is, um, and, and I think that is what the book uh, sort of sets out to do, right? So as you as you mentioned, the the book sort of set around this idea that homeownership is the most important tool that we have for building wealth today, and right, we um, that sort of came into focus even more so after the housing crisis. But that's something that that hasn't changed that much, right? Americans have more wealth invested in their homes than we do in in any other asset, so it continues to be this this really important tool for building wealth. Um and at the same time, right, we, we tend to think of homeownership as, a, as as maybe the most important way to build stronger communities, right? This idea that homeowners are more involved in their communities, um, they're more interested in sort of keeping their neighbor neighborhoods up, they socialize and they interact with their neighbors more. Um and so for you know, at least a hundred years, I, I trace this back to um to the Great Depression and to the New Deal and housing policies then, but we thought that Homeownership has been this really important tool for building communities. Um, and what I argue in the book is that because homeownership has become so important for building wealth, right, because we're so interested in building wealth through housing, um, it really shapes the way that people become involved in their communities. And often when homeowners do become involved in their communities, right, they don't do so in, in a way that we necessarily think is civic or broadly broadly citizenship-oriented or community-oriented, um, but instead, right, we're getting involved in our neighborhoods as a way to protect our property values, right. Right, to protect our wealth, um, and and those kinds of activities that homeowners are engaging in uh, aren't always uh, geared at creating better, stronger, more stable communities. Right? They're they're geared at protecting property values, and that may cut against the ideology of of homeownership as um, the sort of foundation of strong communities. So oh, that's the. Yeah the tension that I want to expose in the book.
0: And and you find you're finding that in your research it's when we buy a home we really do I mean we go to our homeowners meetings and we're not usually saying how do we unify the neighborhood and, and bring everybody yeah, in no. instead it's more yeah. you know why did billy build a shed because sheds make decrease our property value.
2: Yeah no that's exactly right and you know I look I use some data that's from um called the Social Capital Community Survey, but it really asks about the kinds of things that people do when they get involved in your community. So uh, do you vote? Do you uh, volunteer? Do you attend town meetings? Do you join social groups, you know, uh, PTAs or membership groups? And, and what I find is once you um, sort of account for some differences between homeowners and renters, right? homeowners are involved in a, a relatively small set of activities at a higher rate than renters, right? But they, they're more likely to vote than renters. They're more likely to go to a community meeting where town politics are being discussed, right? Those sorts of things that you might do if you're trying to protect your property values. But on the other hand, when we look more broadly at civic engagement, so did you join a sports league in your neighborhood? Are you volunteering in your community? Do you socialize kind of regularly with your neighbors? Um, What I find is that when you look at homeowners and renters, they're actually not all that different, right? So on these broad measures of, of, of civic engagement and socializing with neighbors, homeowners and renters you know, actually look pretty similar. Um, And and related to this, though, I think the the interesting finding from this quantitative portion is what actually drives civic engagement, volunteering and joining membership groups, it's not whether or not you own your home, it's how long you've lived in your neighborhood, Mm. right? So people that live in their neighborhood for a long time, right, they're more likely to socialize with their neighbors. They're more likely to join those groups. And there was a time in the U.S. when buying a home and, being stable in your community, right? Those were really associated with each other. But today, that's that's not always the case, right? The the foreclosure crisis, the housing crisis reminds us that, you know, lots of people that bought homes uh, weren't able to stay in their communities for a long period of time. And and one of the arguments that I make in the book is if housing policy, if we're really trying to encourage um, sociability in neighborhoods and community building, we should think about uh, how it is that we can encourage people to stay in their neighborhoods, regardless of whether they own or rent, right? Because renters are doing these things too right. when they stay in their neighborhood for a long period of time.
0: Well, and aren't we also seeing with um, the millennials more people that are okay not buying a home, just renting?
2: Yeah, no, that's right. And I, and I think that, um, you know, that comes from from two things. I mean, they, after the housing crisis, right, there's a little bit more of a, of a hesitation on the part of millennials um, to enter into the housing market. Um, and I think at the same time, right, it, it's become a little bit harder to buy a home in the last 10 years, right? It became very, very easy, almost too easy to buy a home. And now it's become harder. So people are pulling back. Um, but, you know, that said, I think that, you know, as you mentioned home ownership as this kind of ideology in, in America, when I was, um, when I was doing my research, I looked through a lot of public opinion polls that have been asked about sort of what home ownership means and what the American dream means. Um, and, and it's really interesting, even today. And even for young people, um, Buying a home is still the, the centerpiece of the American dream, right? It's, mm. it's more important than, you know, graduating from college is important to the American dream and doing better than your parents did. But home ownership still is this sort of ideology that almost all Americans uh, ascribe to. Right? I remember one one poll in the research said that um, 90% of our homeowners are happy with their homeownership decision, and 75% of renters. Uh, aspire to ownership one day. Mm. You know, one of the one of the remarkable things about that, and I think especially in the context of our of our current politics, is right. We can't think of anything else that unites Americans uh, to the degree that home ownership does. Right, that we all or right. almost all of us believe that buying a home is a good thing. So it's a really interesting sort of ideology that spans you know, spans your politics. Um, even though millennials are less likely to buy homes and enter into home ownership you know, they still do believe in the the sort of power of homeownership. So it spans kind of all the social categories that we think um, divide people. Homeownership continues to, to be one of those things that unites us.
0: Yeah. I wonder if some of it's tied. I mean, I always have thought of home and family go together, kind of an idea yeah. where, you know, the reason I stay in my neighborhood longer is because my kids are in the schools. I'm also paying right. taxes in those areas. I mean, it's is it was it also I guess designed or I don't know if it was ever intentionally created this way, but it just seemed to support a pro-family. I guess that is pro-community environment.
2: Yeah, yeah no, and I, and I think that's right. I mean, back in the, so the the book traces um, some of the historical roots of our commitment to homeownership, and um, and you know what it what it really comes out of, or what I think it really comes out of, is the early 1900s, right, 1910s and 1920s. You get a lot of people moving from. of rural areas into cities so in 1920 in the united states is the first time that the majority of americans lived in cities Hmm. right um and and what goes along with that is this sort of uh this instability and and the rise of being a tenant right this moving away from right we're not yet in a suburban period but moving away from um, kind of single family or farm or a tight-knit community as people move to the city right looking for work and so there was concern at that time in the 1920s and into the 1930s um, that part of the reason there was so much instability in American cities was because people didn't own their homes and because they, they weren't homeowners, they weren't tied to their communities. Right. People were going to cities. They were looking for work. Um, you know, there's some some threats of political radicalism, right, Bolshevism and anti-democratic movements. Um, and so there's this idea, there's this hope. Uh, that that if you could make people homeowners, right, they'd be more committed to their country, they'd be more committed to their community, they'd be more patriotic. And and in thinking about that, I think it's also important to keep in mind that in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, only about 40, 45% of Americans owned their own homes, right? And compare that to the, the peak of the housing crisis, you know, 2006, 2007, um, almost 70% of Americans owned their own homes. So, So it's not the case that the United States was always a nation of homeowners, and it wasn't actually until after the Second World War, um, right, and you get these kind of massive suburbanization uh, that you get the majority of Americans living in in homes that they owned. So, and, and I think that's really the period, kind of 1950s and 1960s, when we start to tie up these ideas of owning a home and single family detached homes, um, and what it means to live in a family and sort of what that ideal, you know, American family looks like. Um, and and, you know, today, uh, single family homes are overwhelmingly owned by the people that live in them and multifamily units right in in cities are overwhelmingly rented, um, by people. So there really is this connection between single Mm. family homes and home ownership and kind of, and, and family life, um, that you know that has at least a, a fifty, probably a longer fifty year, probably a longer history yeah. um, in the United States.
0: Oh, um, it's it's it really is an interesting um, little yeah. uh, ex- exploration you've done. Again, we're speaking with Doctor Brian uh, J McCabe. He is a, a professor, associate professor at Georgetown University, and uh, we're talking about his book "No Place Like Home: Wealth, Community, and the American Dream." Let's take a break, Brian. Come back, um, and when we come back, I want to talk about maybe the uglier side, though, of home and homeowner- home ownership might be that we we also don't just create communities that you know include people. We might create communities that exclude, that uh, segregate. Right. We'll talk about that as well. More with Dr. Brian McCabe on uh, his book No Place Like Home. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we are talking about home ownership, right? The American dream. And uh, again, with every dream, there comes a reality and a nightmare. And we've seen it in, um, you know, a lot of the, the uh, mortgage crisis and the real estate uh, values dropping over the last 15 or so years as we've had, you know, some issues going on, Right. Is the dream still alive, A, and and really what is the history of the dream of everybody getting a home? No Place Like Home is the name of the book, Wealth, Community, and the American Dream. Our guest, Brian J. McCabe, is a professor, associate professor um, at uh, Georgetown University and is the author of the book and is walking us through some of the history you may not have known about Um, And just the and the research that uh, he has done on home ownership. Welcome back to the show, Dr. McCabe. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: This is um, again, I I just love to have people be informed about it because we we historically we've had guests on the show as well that have brought up, you know, some of our, our history of maybe using real estate and home ownership as a way of moving and even segregating people. Mm -hmm. And like moving, you know, moving the whites to the suburbs and moving and keeping minorities in the inner cities and then eventually moving them into the suburbs just outside of the inner cities. But talk about that. Talk about what ends up happening and what you've learned in your research about how we sometimes use homeownership that way.
2: Yeah, you know, there's um, one of the things that I wrestle with in the book that I think is a, a sort of interesting, interesting point that comes out of it. Is that, you know, we talk about homeownership as a very inclusive institution, right, that um, everybody should have access to it. And once you sort of work hard enough and and save enough money, right, we're going to encourage you and help you to to buy a home. So this is something for, right, that's for everybody. It's central to what it means to be American, to our identity as citizens. Um, but, but I show in the book that not only historically has homeownership been a very exclusionary institution, but actually some of the politics around homeownership today are exclusionary as well, right? So on the historical side, I mean, there's a long history of, um, of redlining in the United States, right, of, of, of not lending in predominantly African-American or changing neighborhoods, right. right, which meant that there was very little credit available in those neighborhoods um, to buy homes, uh, and that, you know, has intergenerational effects that carries on from one generation to another. Right? Today, um, you know, kids when are young people when they buy homes, right? They often borrow money from their parents, or their parents take out equity from their homes to help their kids buy homes. So, um, so this sort of carries on from one generation to another, and we see that in the the tremendous gap um, between blacks and whites in the home ownership rate today. It's about a 25 point gap between blacks and mm. whites. Um, in the, the the percentage that owned their own home. so so there's a historical set of practices um, right that have created um, kind of these racial gaps in home ownership. A lot of the suburbs that were originally built um, were primarily for or exclusively for whites, not even primarily for whites so in the post second world War period right the Levitt towns and kind of other American suburbs um, were, were built for white Americans. And so that has sort of lingering consequences. And so the, the book wrestles with kind of the, the history of that exclusive part of it. And then today, though, you know, I also talked, and we mentioned this just before the break, about um, the way homeowners engage in this exclusionary politics. So one of the things that I argue in the book through a number of case studies of different towns and cities in the United States is that you know often by working to protect our property values um, homeowners are working to keep particular kinds of people or particular types of land uses out of their neighborhoods right so um, oftentimes homeowners don't want affordable housing to be built in their neighborhoods right they right. see affordable housing as um, attracting people that are a lower socioeconomic status than them um, much of this is very racially coded language right especially in the suburbs um, and so 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 the people will say well you know, I think that this is going to lower my property values. And as a taxpayer, as a taxpaying homeowner, right, I don't want this to lower right, the value of my largest investment. Um, but what that means is that, right, lower income folks don't have the opportunity to move to high opportunity neighborhoods. Right, right. Homeowners are working to exclude them from, from their neighborhoods, um, working to exclude certain kinds of land uses, right, things that we don't, you know, a homeless shelter, for example, in a city, um, right, there's often these um, sort of nindy battles within cities to, to keep undesirable land uses out of our neighborhoods because we think that um, those are going to lower our property values so so the the sort of point that i that I try to bring out in the book is that our our, our intense focus on property values through housing um, often means that we're creating these communities that are more segregated that are less integrated that are less inclusive right that are more racially segregated because we're intent on protecting. Protecting our property values, so mm. so it really challenges this question of whether homeownership is an inclusive institution, right, or is it something that leads us to be exclusive in our politics and in our behavior.
0: And I, I think it's just a great idea to ask your everybody to ask themselves that. Do yeah. Do how do we use it? Do I? How do I think? Like when they are building more apartments in my neighborhood area, do does that bother me because I do think my property values will drop and i don't want certain people in my neighborhood that's i mean we all need to evaluate our own use of that
2: yeah no absolutely and and, and i think that you know it's important too i mean i i say, I say these things that are critical of home ownership for sure right and, and i think it's important to be critical of it um and but we should do so alongside the recognition that there are lots of benefits to owning a home as right. well right, right. so you know unlike rent where your rent may rise over years right your your mortgage payment if you have a traditional loan right is pretty steady over time people feel a lot of personal freedom right to to redecorate and to to you know feel at home in their own homes um it still is right in many ways a, g- a good way for building wealth so i don't mean to sort of discount right. or disparage some of the benefits of home ownership I, I mean only to right encourage us to talk about the way that uh, this may not be as good for communities as we
0: as we often think that it is. Well, I we have I live in a community in Utah and which doesn't have a lot of minorities, and my kids uh-huh. my kids are sad about it. They 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 want more. They want more diversity. They want more. Um, but again, you're sitting. I'm sitting there with a brand new high school and a brand new junior high and a brand new middle yep. school, and it's all white. And um, yep. And by the way, and the, and the best diversity we get is when we get to church, where our church area includes apartment buildings, and there's diversity, and all of a sudden, uh-huh. you feel normal.
2: Yeah, well, and that's, you know, the, the, the sociologist in me, right, is really committed to, to this idea. I mean, when we're around people that are different from us, right, when we interact kind of regularly, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, with people that are different, different than us, whether it's class diversity or racial diversity, right? We learn about them, we become empathetic, um, and and so I think there's a, a value to having that kind of unexpected encounter with people that are just different from us, right? Yeah. Um, and this is something that in segregated neighborhoods, whether they're segregated because of home or segregated for right any number of other reasons, um, right? People aren't interacting with people that are different than they are, and this is you know sort of presents a challenge for. Um, how you know how we live our lives? How empathetic we become? How much how how tolerant we are? How much we embrace diversity when that's not part of our everyday life?
0: Mm-hmm. And and again, we we don't even think about it just because it's a home. I one of the reasons I love uh, the home ownership idea is because it almost I feel compelled to save and invest. Basically, is what I'm doing. Yeah. And I was I was I look at all of these um, supposed millennials that they're okay in an apartment and then they're just using their their discretionary money to to travel and to have life experiences yeah. and i think yeah. well that's cool but then i worry yeah. that in 50 or 30 years are they going yeah. to have a retirement are they going to have a nest egg
2: yeah yeah well and and you know the idea of saving and investing for home ownership so you know as long as you and I have a, you know, traditional 30 year mortgage where I have to put down 5, 10, or 20%. And I have a regular monthly payment. Then homeownership is a good way to save and invest. Right. But, but one of the, you know, the big challenge in the lead up to the housing crisis was that, um, right. Our loans became so exotic where you didn't have to put down money and you just had to pay the interest. So you were never paying down the principal, right? right? There were all these, all these loans that, um, like got people into ownership. You know, you, you think saving and investing through homeownership. But that's not true if you're only paying down the principal of right. you have no equity in your home. So, you know, there was a time, one of the things that I found in, in the historical research on home ownership was in the 1910s and 20s and 30s, people put down 50%, right? So you actually had to save money yeah. before you could buy a home, right? Whereas today, you could put down 5%, 10%, and then you save through home ownership rather than saving for it. Right. So save yeah. And then buy a house. You, your, your home now is the vehicle... Through which you save so there's a real transformation right in 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 how we think about homeownership as kind of a savings and investment vehicle right this is where you know the average homeowner has uh, about a third 30 percent of his or her wealth in in the value of their home and for low-income middle income people um, it's even higher than that yeah. Right. so for for kind of middle-income Americans that are homeowners you know on average about half of their wealth is in their housing which is a really sort of remarkable, non-diversified asset to, 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 to build your wealth in.
0: And especially and, when you think that um, how many people overreached, right? They overreached to get a bigger yeah. home, so they, I guess, could supposedly have a bigger dream, but, and then it bit them, right? And, it, and, and, yeah. now, and then they did have bankruptcies, and they lost their home, and now they're upside down.
2: Right. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the other part of the kind of last piece of the puzzle in the book is about the way the federal government subsidizes homeownership. Right. And um, and one of the things that I show is that the largest, uh, the the mortgage interest deduction is one of the largest tax, tax expenditures in the country. Right. I can deduct the interest payments on my mortgage loans from my federal tax liability. Right. And economists have shown for a long time that what that actually does is it encourages people to buy bigger homes. Right. Because uh-huh. They're, they investing more money in housing because it's, um, it's deductible in a way that other, other interest payments are not. And so they tend to overconsume housing, right? Which is to say they buy larger homes because the federal government incentivizes, right? Buying into home ownership. And so I think that's another piece that we need to take really seriously is that the federal government, uh, allows us to deduct our mortgage interest payments on our homes when we have capital gains on our homes, right? So if I sell my home and I make a profit on it, I don't have to pay taxes up to almost $250,000. Right. I can deduct all the state and local property taxes that I pay from my federal tax liability. So there are, there are all these other ways built into the tax code that homeowners are these tremendously privileged um, um, you know, recipients of tax windfalls on tax day. Uh, and so you know, it's another piece of this puzzle. Why is the federal government so interested in subsidizing homeownership and what are the consequences of, of them doing that?
0: Mm, especially again, when it brought our economy to its knees.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's been, you know, almost no frank discussion of uh, sort of rethinking homeownership policy in the U.S. I mean, even if you homeownership still is, um, you know, high opportunity, it should be this inclusive institution. Um, and there's been, you know, of course, a lot of GSE reform and thinking about how we finance homeownership. But 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 very little change, I think, in this kind of ideology that everybody should be or could be a homeowner.
0: So what do we do, Brian, as we wrap this up? What does what should the average homeowner dad with uh, four kids at home? What should I be thinking about to make to make sure I'm not letting it kill me, but I'm not also just I'm not segregating. I'm not keeping people out. I'm what should I do?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think that there are, there are sort of two levels that I think about this question on. So what can I do as a homeowner, right? And, and I think it's, you know, to be reflective and to be aware of the way that I'm becoming involved in my communities, yeah. um, to, to think about, um, you know, when my actions are uh, geared at, you know, reinforcing patterns of segregation or economic inequality and, you know, to sort of step back. I mean, one of the things that, um, that I'm interested in as a social scientist is that a lot of the things that we think lower our property values. Actually, don't so there's been quite a bit of work on you know when subsidized housing comes in when homeless shelters come in there's very little negative effects um, in in real terms so I mean I think that's one thing that we can do at the individual level Um, I think we can also back up and and sort of think more broadly about the policies here so why is it um, that the federal government still does encourage homeownership so much and one of the things that I argue is that instead of encouraging ownership we should be encouraging stability right we could have tax credits that are associated with stability and the federal government could be rethinking the way we, you know, encourage people to live and buy homes, and to to value renting, even long-term renting, as a sort of equal option. To think about ways that renters could also build assets. To think about other kinds of home ownership, right? Whether it's um, um, sort of shared equity or community land trust, or something else that sort of takes it outside of this model of. Individual home ownership.
0: Well, yeah. we appreciate. It. I think it's a. I think it's an interesting discussion that uh, we need. Great. We need to have these open dialogues and make sure that we are inclusive, not just not just talking it, but we need to see it. We need to see more um, open communities that are inclusive. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. Thank you, you so much. To keep up the great work great. there at Georgetown. Again, Brian J. McCabe, uh, a, a associate professor at Georgetown University, also the author of No Place Like Home wealth community and the politics of home ownership wanting to open up your minds folks right all of us we think about it you me we need to figure out um we have all of these things that we just keep doing and i'm not sure we've even thought it through you don't always need a house you might need an apartment how about a condo how about a house boat there's a lot of different ways to create a home and uh Many times it's the house that's the actual entity itself that might be the least important. It might be more the feeling that's inside the home. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, home ownership. It's got a lot of perks. Um, this weekend, I realize it's also got a downside. you got to do a lot of work.
3: Every weekend. Every
0: you feel weekend. like maybe I'm on top of this, I get to put my feet up, and yeah, no. No. And if you don't do work, then your neighbors start complaining. And then the city shows up. And then all of a sudden, you're like, come on. Yeah. I was just doing this for an investment. So one that's one problem because once you get a home you got to take care of it. You got to fill it up with stuff, right? Um and then when you're done filling it up you got to go get a, a a rental unit and then fill that rental unit up with stuff. <laughs> We're thinking about that right now. Consumerism all that. But here's the other dilemma, you have to protect it. Yeah. Because once you've got it, now that's where you need home alarms and because then, you know, as we do so many times, then the the dark side could come and start trying to steal all of your stuff. Right. And then you got to have your son. I think he was 11. <laughs> Tell the story, Terry. 11 was so, in 11? An 11
3: year old boy in Alabama says he opened fire with a gun and, a, and wounded a man suspected of breaking into his home. Wow. Chris Gathier tells uh, WVTM TV he was home alone in Talladega on Wednesday when he last week when he heard a noise and realized someone else was inside. The boy says he grabbed a 9 millimeter handgun, and an arm male intruder threatened to kill him. Gathier says he followed the man outside and started shooting as the intruder fled uh, with a clothes hamper full of random things he had grabbed in the uh, in the house. And he says Gathier said that he wounded the man in the leg with his 12th and final shot. So he, he just started emptied. just emptying the clip. Oh, my So here's, the, here's the sound clip from the news report.
2: I shot through a hamper that he was carrying. And it, went, it was a full metal jacket bullet. I went straight through the bag of him and was like... And he started crying
0: like a little baby. <laughs> this is crazy. This is a, a
3: an 11 year old kid with a gun. Yeah, he's standing. He goes, "Yeah, I shot him. It was a full metal
0: jacket bullet." He started crying <laughs> like a little baby. <laughs> that is, uh, it should be like traumatic, right? This kid, yeah. needs therapy. <laughs>
3: he's just like, "It's great." My stepfather shot. Told me how to, sh- or, you know, taught, taught me, me how, how, how to, to shoot, shoot the gun, and. And he, he was looking at me like I wasn't going to shoot him, but I, I, I showed I him. I knew I was going to shoot him.
0: <laughs> I didn't want to shoot him in Mama's house because I didn't want Mama to have to clean up the mess. So I waited till he left the place. <laughs> Did he really? So he? how many bullets hit the guy? One? One.
3: He shot 12 bullets. The last one went through the hamper the guy was carrying, hit him in the leg, and he, quote, was crying like a little
0: baby.
1: <laughs>
3: wow.
0: Man, that guy has no idea what he walked into. No. See, you can't choose, right? Oh, what, this little kid's going to get me? What, is that a little kitty gun you got there? Yeah. No, it's my daddy's 9 millimeter. <laughs>
3: <laughs> 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 Prepare to die, fella. But I... Wow. I, I mean, there is, there, there's the idea that he shot 11 bullets. Yeah. That basically, I guess, sprayed the house.
0: Well, and I'm sure all you had to do was shoot one and the guy was gone, right? He was probably yeah. on the way out. Right. At that point. I mean, 11 bullets had been fired, apparently. Yeah.
3: <laughs> do you think after about five or six, he's like, he can't hit me. Yeah. You are the
0: worst <laughs> shot ever. The, do you think the guy was counting the bullets? I don't think there's so. There's one. There's two. There's three. There's four. He doesn't know how big the, the cartridge is. But it's funny. They are interviewing the
3: kid. He's just standing there all proud. I yeah. shot him. He was crying like a baby. Now,
0: there are laws to how you can use your weapon, right, yes. on your property? I'm assuming the father didn't teach the son all of those rules. No, but most states
3: have the, if someone is in your home... Yeah, you can protect yourself. You can protect yourself. He's lucky he
0: didn't have like a semi-automatic... In
3: Texas, those laws, at least when I was there before, uh, they extend to all land that you own. So if they're on your land... Yeah, so if someone comes to your
0: door... Man. ...and you don't want them there... See, that's why you always want to like rob a house in the suburbs... Not out like on the ranch because yeah. the ranch, you got 500 acres to run. Yeah, there's a different world out <laughs> that there. That is a long run <laughs> when you're trying to get away from a kid with the gun. Holy cow. See, home ownership, folks. It brings a lot of blessings. Plus, your kids will grow up. They'll learn responsibility. There you go. <laughs> they'll learn how to clean and uh, reload their 9 millimeter. Interesting. Great. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we've got a whole new show, a whole other hour of more ideas, more insight for you. In fact, we're going to be talking to a medical doctor who will be talking about proof of heaven, scientific proof of heaven. It's uh, It's an interesting discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and in a few minutes in heaven as well. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to the best of The Matt
0: Townsend Show.
2: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game.
1: Your guide on the
0: side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: We've been talking about the impact of the internet on your brain. Does it make it all mushy? No. Unless you're a Kardashian. No, it doesn't. Come on. But again, folks, we got to learn to be a, a media critic, right? We got to know what's what's real, what's not, who we should trust. We cannot equate a media personality to, a, a, you know, a strong source of knowledge about any topic really right wouldn't you rather have a researcher wouldn't you really rather have somebody that's studied it that maybe doesn't have a that's maybe not making money to be a pitch person it's hard it's it's really hard to to know who to trust and what to trust and you know there's that's our responsibility as parents is we can step in and start to create just conversations, more and more conversations. And uh, what I'm finding with my family is it doesn't, you don't have to make this a big formal thing. It's just constant. Keep bringing it up every time you get a chance, every time you see a story on the news, use the story as a catalyst to talk. These discussions, one by one, your kids are listening. They're hearing it. They know what's going on. When you see that, do you really think that's happening? That's. Do you think that that person really uses that? Do you think they really look like that? Anyway, a lot of this is just, it's hard. I mean, parenting's hard enough. Now, all of a sudden, I've got, a, I've got my children looking at a screen eight, nine hours a day. That's not even including television, right? That's just computers, cell phones, iPads, seven to eight, nine hours a day. Ah, oh, boy. Hey, uh, check out this crazy um, uh, bad boys segment. Bad boys, bad boys. Investigators say they believe they've identified a man wanted in connection with a the theft of more than $1,500 in chewing gum. Regional police say a man took the gum from a pharmacy north of Toronto in December. Investigators say the man went to the drugstore on the evening of December 17th. And video surveillance shows he went uh, to the candy aisle, filled a garbage bag with gum and left. <laughs> wow. A few moments later, he re-entered the store, filled another garbage bag with chewing gum and walked out again. Police say they believe he loaded both garbage bags containing chewy gum worth $1,528 into a waiting taxi, and they drove away. I'm and
1: pretty we- sure I know how you'd catch him. How? Or identify him. How would you identify him? The sound. That's not gum. I'm pretty sure it is. It's like that um Big Leagues gum, like the sub Yeah, like- he's got a lot of it, apparently. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of people that can't hear They can't listen to the sound Because it makes them cringe
1: Yeah, our, our listenership drops by 50% Every time. Yeah,
0: I love it because it reminds me of you, Ben I know It's, it's, it's like Ben just had breakfast It's like our moment When <laughs> I started eating my granola bar <laughs> You're, Yeah, or anything really Yeah You just got a lot of saliva in there Generally the wet stuff is what brings it out the most But Playing hooky and chewing gum that's a it's a life made for children you're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show you know one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship right and as a relationship coach uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to so it will be today's topic of the coach's corner how do we how do we close the closeness gap. Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally. And, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking. You might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant And um, there's – it is a plague, quite honestly, and and yet it's something that we we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away. Because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things – there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, – uh, the Kira, Kira somebody – let me find, look up her name. But it's – in the book – Um, One of the ideas behind the concept of Stop Being Lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book "Stop Being Lonely: Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships." But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits. Um, what are their top, you know, eight? You know, positive ways that they see themselves, and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves? That that they in their in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really they feel this way. Uh, they they and and basically, this couple had been arguing about a situation, and um, we did this activity, and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait, was. Um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had him start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean that confusion's not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Make sense? We'll take a break. We'll be back for more of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe in life after death? Think about it. Many do, right? And uh, different religions paint different pictures of what it may look like from heavenly angels to simply an abode of peace. Other religions don't believe in a heaven that exists as a physical space, but uh, what would it look like to you? Our guest today, Dr. Evan Alexander III, a renowned academic neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience and came back with a whole new perspective, he joins us now, live from Virginia, to talk about his experience. Dr. Evan Alexander, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Well, Matt, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been honored to have you. What an interesting topic! Because as a neuroscience and or a neurosurgeon and um, and a professional, you you had your own view of of uh, heaven and life after death, and you didn't believe it. Before oh, you had your into own experience, the, uh,
1: conventional party line. You know, the I went to med school, uh, finished 1980, and then all through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, my uh, career uh, at Harvard Medical School teaching neurosurgery. I thought I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness works, but it was definitely uh, trapped in in kind of the old paradigm of the. Uh, 20th and early 21st century of you know the physical being all that exists and consciousness being some epiphenomenon of the workings of the physical brain, and my coma journey showed me very clearly that that was completely backwards. And the good news is that much of the scientific community is waking up to this now, all yeah. over the question of consciousness, and it's going to revolutionize our worldview. Wow! And
0: t- talk to us, talk to us about what what led you what what happened to you. That made you, um, that made you change your tune.
1: Well, I think uh, the real gift in all this was my diagnosis. Uh, no other means of going into coma could have allowed me to come away with the conclusions that I could, and the reason is that a severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningitis like I had, that's the very worst kind of bacterial meningitis you can have. Mm. Um, And my doctors knew full well that my neocortex, the human part of the brain, the outer surface, was devastated, even when I was first brought into the emergency room on day one. And I spent seven days in coma, uh, and doctors who deal with such illness will realize you never have a patient who spends – uh, seven days in coma from that, and then has a full recovery, especially given the details of how uh, how ill I was from this meningitis um, and A deep mystery, along with you don 't ever come back from that kind of thing is uh, you should have no experience within it because our our modern neuroscientific views of the neocortex and its role in the brain of creating consciousness mean that. Uh, You know, my kind of coma with such a complete destruction of the neocortex should not allow any kind of hallucination, dream effect, uh, dream state drug effect, anything like that. And yet I had a very rich experience that was far beyond what my brain could muster even now. Uh, And this is all pointing out that consciousness is not created by the brain at all, that there's much more to the universe than just the physical. And it's a revolution in the awakening of of our scientific community to the realities of non-local consciousness, and that consciousness is fundamental in the universe.
0: Powerful. And the mere fact, too, that you remember. I mean, mean, it seems like just coming out of such a thing would be – you wouldn't be able to remember it either, but apparently – you remember it, you experienced it, you weren't supposed to, based on our, our traditional history of, of understanding, and, and now you can blow up some
1: paradigms. Well, you know, for a long time, uh, memory has been a deep, deep question in the neuroscientific world, and even though I came along with the rest of uh, conventional neuroscience thinking that somehow memories must be stored in the physical brain, because I thought the physical brain created consciousness, but now I realize that memories are not stored in the brain in that sense at all. And in fact, one of the, the greatest neurosurgeons of the 20th century, who absolutely has the best evidence uh, to talk about memory and the brain and, and all of that is Wilder Penfield. He wrote a beautiful book uh, in, the, in 1975 called The Mystery of the Mind. He was a, a renowned Canadian neurosurgeon, worked in Montreal mainly with epileptic patients And he had electrically stimulated the brain in these patients doing operations to resect uh, the cause of their seizures, the parts of the brain that were the problem, for decades. And he wrote this book in 1975 and made it very clear that mind and consciousness are not created by the brain. He made it very clear that free will... Is not something that can be found in the brain at all. And uh, yet, his book, The Mystery of the Mind, which is a deep scientific study of the fundamental nature of consciousness, uh, basically fell on deaf ears. You know, Hmm. the world was not ready in 1975 to hear that. But the world is ready now, and this is the awakening that is coming to the scientific community and the world at large that will revolutionize our thinking and serve to synthesize science and spirituality in a much more profound sense.
0: Was it, were you worried um, to come out of the closet, so to speak, and, and talk about your findings, talk about what you learned, or did you feel this imperative in your heart because of the spiritual nature of what you'd been through?
1: Well, it's important to point out that um, my illness was devastating. When I first woke up in the ICU on day seven of my coma, a few hours after my doctors had recommended just stopping the antibiotics because they estimated I was down to 2% chance of survival with no chance of recovery, when I did start waking up, my brain was absolutely wrecked. I did not recognize my mother, my sisters, my uh, sons standing at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. All of my memories of Evan Alexander's life before coma, including all language, religious concepts, hmm. uh, every bit of that had been deleted in the middle of the experience, uh, which allowed for a very profound and robust experience, which, of course, is what I describe in the book Proof of Heaven and the sequel, The Map of Heaven. Yeah. But uh, when I first came back, it was so shocking to me and so ultra real as i told my older son who was majoring in neuroscience at the time i said it was way too real to be real which was the best way i could express it and, and my doctors kept telling me that my brain was far too damaged to have experienced anything. So my default uh, explanation early on was it had to be some massive hallucination that completely defied any kind of uh, conventional neuroscientific thinking, but I still thought it had to be based in my brain. I was defaulting to my pre-coma thinking. But as time went on, as I went and spoke with my doctors, reviewed my case, went through all the medical records, all the scans, and talked it over with them and with interested neurosurgical colleagues What we ended up discovering was it seemed way too real to be real because it absolutely was. We ruled out that it could have been any kind of hallucination or trick of the dying brain because my brain was too incapacitated in the form of destruction of the neocortex, which was global in my case, uh, to have allowed any such experiences to happen. So to this day, my doctors will tell you they have no explanation whatsoever for my recovery, uh, you know, I was 2% chance of survival, so that's not unheard of, 2%, but they thought it was absolutely unheard of that I would have any meaningful recovery and return to consciousness. And yet within three months, everything had come back and was actually more complete than it had been before my coma in terms of memories and and uh, my general Kind of overall mental and conscious state was even enhanced beyond what it had been before my coma. Hmm. That part was extremely difficult to explain, and it's why I'm still on a vertical part of the learning curve trying to understand all of this.
0: Wow, and and yet you've you've also been become um, I guess adept at being able to explain what we don't know, what we don't understand, and do it doing it academically, but also being able to connect it to that, that spiritual peace that uh, that people need. Talk to us about heaven. What did well, you learn? It,
1: uh, you know, we you don't have to just go by my story. That's the really good news here, is proof of heaven is just one story of millions uh, of modern stories. There are tens of thousands of reports out there on the internet, and of course I get the benefit by talking several times a week about this around the world. I have uh, many people come up to me, I'd say roughly 10 to 15 percent of my audiences at the end of my talks will come up and say I never told anybody this before hmm. but yeah and they will share with me a story that is absolutely world-changing when you realize how common these stories are and the similarities between them yeah and these are often people who may not have ever read anything about near-death experiences and the other category that is so shocking are what are called shared death experiences and I started giving talks on my experience about two and a half years before proof of heaven came out back in 2010 and i started having many people come up to me afterwards and share not only a near death experience they may have had or a, a deathbed visitation or deathbed vision uh you know something that was shared with them by a departing soul of a departing loved one but also the shared death experiences where in fact um the uh, Soul of a loved one at the bedside, but it can be, they could be 3,000 miles away, but more commonly they're at the bedside of someone who is dying. um, And they, the bystander soul, gets sucked along on the journey. And the typical way they tell this to me is that they're standing there at the bedside of their, say, for example, their mother dying, uh, and all of a sudden they see the walls and floor and ceiling blend into this geometry of infinity and these light beings come in they see the light body soul rise up out of the uh, body of their departing of the de- dying loved one and then the soul of the bystander also goes along on the journey even to the point of seeing a full blown life review hmm. and then They come back to this world, and like I said, this kind of thing can happen even if you're 3,000 miles away from your dying mother. Uh, Her soul can come through and give you this blissful, incredibly concrete message about the reality of your interconnection as souls, and then move on. And so when you start hearing shared death experiences like that in people who are physiologically totally normal, so all of those nonsensical, simplistic pseudo-explanations from the world of medicine and science trying to say, well, it's just oxygen tension in the brain as you die or the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood and other kinds of uh, similarly nonsensical uh, tripe, what you realize is that this is a far more profound mystery about the nature of who we are and the commonality of these experiences and the fact that they're there by the millions is what drives this world to come to a deeper explanation when you realize they are not simplistically dismissed as hallucinations or drug effects right. but they're far more profound indicators of the nature of our eternal spiritual being and that the only thing that matters is our interrelationships with others because I often say this is really the evolution of all of humanity, which is occurring through each and every one of us, but is a much bigger story about getting into the depths of uh, our nature for being and purpose in our lives and what this whole existence is all about. And uh, that's what this world needs to wake up to now and is waking up to now, as is the entire scientific community around the question of consciousness and the relationship of brain and mind.
0: It's, uh, it's fascinating. Recently, too, we just had on Dr. Lisa Miller from Columbia, who wrote the book The Spiritual Child, and again, validating the academic research around spirituality and, and a connectedness to a higher being, a higher power, a oneness of the universe, whatever we want to call it. But um, she's able now, through twin studies and other studies, to validate the, the great benefits of a connection to that higher power, and it, it is. It seems like it's, it's, it's the time. It's the time that we need to start maybe um, opening up and studying this more. We're speaking with Dr. Eben Alexander um, and his book, Proof of Heaven, also uh, his, his new book, The Map of Heaven. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion, learn more about uh, what Dr. Alexander found um, on the other side. <laughs> Proof of Heaven. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: i there the second this world could give. I saw so many
0: places, the
1: things that I did. There was every broken bone. I swear I live.
0: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe in heaven? Have you heard friends tell their uh, near-death experiences or other experiences where they felt a connection to a soul that had just passed or um, you know been on a been on a journey uh, with those people as well um, post death? Well, our our guest that we're speaking with, Doctor Evan Alexander III, is the author of the book Proof of Heaven. A neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife after suffering a severe, uh, fatal, really, but not, not for him, um, uh, diagnosis of a form of meningitis, he, um, he, he went there and, and back and, is, and then blew up a lot of myths that uh, he had learned as a neurosurgeon and a renowned neurosurgeon at that. Um, again, Dr. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being with us.
1: It's great to be back.
0: Teach us what, uh, what else? What do we need to know? Um, what do we need to know from the other side, as one that's journeyed and and felt um, and felt that that change, and and also come back? And what do we need to know, just as the average
1: citizen? As the average citizen, the best thing to know is that we are each deeply loved and cherished and will be taken care of. We simply have to recover the memory uh, that we are eternal spiritual beings. Now, the thing is, we're not in this in isolation because through this evolving understanding of consciousness and what it is, what we're coming to see is that we are all interconnected within consciousness. It's almost like this is one mind that is actually doing the learning and teaching and growing and evolving. And we're all parts of that one mind. And even though... The way we are uh, presented, you know, as individual uh, incarnations in these physical bodies, and that leads us into this uh, kind of false belief of separation. Uh, In deep meditation and in centering prayer and through spontaneous epiphanies, what have you, we can come to see very clearly that we are really part of one. Mind, We're all in this together. This is why this love of the creator for the creation, which so many near-death experiencers describe feeling in that realm, that uh, infinite healing power of unconditional love. Uh, and, of course, many of us call that uh, incredible love God. That deity is uh, labeled as God, as the creator, as the source of all that is. And I would say that that's very much the case, that the very basis of our consciousness is that God that deity that fundamental consciousness and when we realize the physical brain is not creating that at all but in fact the brain works more like a reducing valve or filter that allows that primordial consciousness in that that infinite universal primordial consciousness pre-exists all of this universe it stands outside of space and time as the creator of all that evolves and that is something we are all part of. And so by going within meditation, centering prayer, what have you, or spontaneous epiphanies from a in- near-death experience or a deathbed visitation, a uh, shared death experience, what have you, we are getting in touch with that, of that God, that deity, that powerful source consciousness across the veil. Uh, and that's why so much of my work now as I mentioned in the appendix of the book Map of Heaven, uh, that appendix is entitled The Answers Lie Within Us All, has everything to do with uh, sharing tools for deep conscious exploration. Specifically, um, that involves sacred acoustics. And for people who want to obtain these tools, there's a free download at sacredacoustics.com. And people can listen to differential sound frequencies that sacred acoustics has developed and I've worked very closely with them in that process and these tools oddly enough sound differential frequency sound as was discovered in the mid-1800s by a German physiologist named Dove can do an amazing job of helping us to get in touch with that infinite awareness and to slip outside of the false sense of the here now that is projected to us by our brain serving as a filter and reducing consciousness down to this tiny little trickle. Hmm. And that's why it's so important to go within, and in fact, this is all about healing. Uh, in the in the grandest sense, whether you're talking about healing of the individual from an Ill- illness, healing of uh, groups, of soul groups, healing of ethnic and national groups, we're all in the process of healing through this awakening, this synthesis of science and spirituality that's coming to this world brings great healing to the world. But just as individuals... Uh, by going within, you can come to see that any kind of physical, mental, emotional healing you want to talk about must originate with spiritual healing. And only when we get that far grander sense of who we are, how we're all interconnected. The important thing here is the love and the interconnectedness and relationships. And the best way to truly love ourselves, I saw when I came back from my coma, that one of the biggest problems in this world is we don't even love ourselves in Right. We think the tough part is loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, but you really must start with loving yourself, and the best way to do that is to remember that we are infinitely powerful, eternally existent spiritual beings that are all interconnected, and in the very core of our conscious awareness is that deity, that God, that sense of love. And by manifesting that love, unconditional love of the Creator for the creation, We can basically serve as a conduit for that love and use it in all of our life choices to show love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy to all of our fellow beings. And I don't think anyone would question that serving as a point of light and manifesting that kind of love is what enables each and every one of us to move much closer to that love and to Mm -hmm. that infinite awareness of self and of joy and bliss that only comes by realizing that by sharing that with the world with all fellow beings is the way that we most fully manifest it for ourselves because in fact the ego leads us into all kinds of tricks about this false sense of separation but to recover that love that love for ourselves it's best done by loving others Mm. and that's what enables us to really grow that love and manifest that love for all of the infinite healing power that it harbors and brings to this world.
0: Did you have, Doctor Alexander, a religious creed before you, before you had your uh, your your brain? What do we call it? Uh, meningitis, or because it's interesting, you you even you make it, it. It's very simple, isn't it? This isn't about a heaven and God choosing. Uh, the ones he likes more than the ones he doesn't, and then sending a bunch down to hell. You're but no, you're talking, but it's it's pure love, isn't it? It's pure peace.
1: It is, it is really. In fact, I came away from my journey very clearly seeing that love and light are they are the presence in the universe, and I saw that uh, darkness and evil, you know, uh, man's inhumanity to man, all the warfare and violence, every bit of that. Um, does not have a a presence as an active positive force in that world. Uh, Those darknesses and evils represent the absence of the light and love. But Mm. in fact, uh, that unconditional love in its purest form has infinite power to heal. There is not a force that counters it, a force of evil that might someday overcome it. Uh, and that was a very powerful revelation to to see the the power of unconditional love to heal this world there 's nothing that goes up against it because the darkness and evil is simply the absence of it hmm. yeah and and that is such a a crucial distinction to make, but this is it is very simple. These are ancient lessons, and yet they're the only way out for our most advanced fronts of uh, materialist science and cosmology, because as long as you're stuck in that pure materialism thinking that you know subatomic particles are the only thing that exists in this universe, the more Uh, you're really kind of stuck in an untruth because it's all fundamentally originating from consciousness. And those involved in physics only have to know the depth of the measurement problem and what it tells us. That's what drove the founding fathers of quantum uh, mechanics into mysticism. People like Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrodinger. Uh, Louis de Broglie, or James Jeans, and others because it, it showed them the findings in, in quantum mechanical experiments proved that consciousness is fundamental in the universe. And the, and the physics and cosmology community has spent the last 116 years kind of waffling over that, uh, unwilling to make the committing step, but that's why the measurement problem in quantum mechanics mm. is still completely unresolved. But the more they come to realize, That consciousness is fundamental, that consciousness is that God force, that force of love, that it's described empirically by all those who have been to the other side, including the tens of millions of near-death experiencers that have come up over the last 50 years because of cardiac resuscitation techniques introduced in modern medicine. That is no accident that we have this incredible army of near-death experiencers who have come back to this world to help usher the world into a whole new understanding, uh, which realizes that the material and physical side is only a tiny little subset of what really exists in the universe. And in fact, any human being uh, can only know and has only known throughout all of history – Only the inside of their own consciousness. So to deny the existence of consciousness is really to deny the existence of all reality. The thing is, the mind and brain are so incredibly powerfully clever at the trick of convincing us that what we witness out in the world is all that world out there is actually out there. Because the truth is, No one has ever experienced anything other than an internal model, a representation of what we assume to be the outside world. But that's why the deep mystery of quantum mechanics is so profound, because the more and more you go into the experiments of quantum mechanics into recent years, the more refined experiments, the more you realize that that old uh, dream of the clockwork universe ticking away that 400 years of the scientific revolution has been searching for Uh, The quantum mechanical experiments of the most recent variety show us that there is no such objective external physical reality, Hmm. that all of it depends on mind and consciousness for serving as kind of the interpreter or the stage on which all of that is assembled. But there is nothing but consciousness. It's the only thing we've ever experienced. And yet our modern science, conventional science, tries to dismiss that and say, no, no, no. Uh, In fact, it's just the workings of the subatomic particles, atoms, molecules in the brain, giving you the illusion of consciousness, illusion of free will, and in fact, that, is the viewpoint that has it completely backwards. Huh. My coma journey showed me very clearly. Yeah. Uh,
0: we only have about a minute or so left. Talk to us about, um, uh, I mean, th- this change. We It seems like we are only a paradigm shift away from getting to that peace, that unconditional love that you're talking about. We only need to see it just a little bit differently, and and it can immediately change us. What is something we can do today to create that shift of, toward love
1: and light today? Well, to go within. Uh, you know, silence that little voice. Remember, the voice in your head is not your consciousness. It's a, it's a parlor trick, the linguistic brain as it's tied to ego uh, and, and false sense of self. So going within is absolutely essential, going into consciousness. This, again, is why I suggest the tools of sacred acoustics. If people will go download that or any form of meditation or deep-centering prayer that you may have in place. But for those who say, well, my mind is too busy to meditate, I can't do it. Well, go to sacred acoustics, and you will definitely find a way to absolutely go within Hmm. and come to realize that that is the means by which we go out into the universe and come into much greater wisdoms. Just as all the seers and seekers and prophets and mystics have done over thousands of years, going within is absolutely the key to coming to know all the information of this universe. Make it a regular practice, and everything in your life will improve.
0: Ah, oh, beautiful! I, you can art. I mean, you can just. How could it not? Going to more love, going to more. Centeredness and this and, a, and an unconditional love toward others. How could you beat it, Doctor Eben Alexander? We appreciate you so much. Thank you for your journey with us and uh, and keep teaching.
1: Well, Matt, thank you so much for having me, and uh, God bless you, and, you and all of your listeners and all here. Thank you, thank you
0: again, Doctor Eben Alexander. If you go to his website, e b e n alexander dot com, dot com, um, proof of heaven and. Um, Map of Heaven: Two wonderful uh, resources for you to to go in, go inside, and you know, if you whatever you're thinking, you feel you feel something different when you talk about that. This is about love and unconditional love, and um, there is a difference between what you're thinking, you are, and what you feel in your most peaceful, at at peace moments, um, holding your baby, uh, being by somebody that's passing. There's a whole different mindset, your consciousness. There's a whole different level for you there. And uh, we all need to be seeking after it one way or another if you really truly want to have some peace. We'll take a break, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that? Right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness? which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up. I call it spirit. What Or is it your spirit? What, what, which, what do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world, I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy, sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you – And everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up. To me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into – little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blinkety blank The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are, you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, right? And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier And more powerful? And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say, just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow, Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, Your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better. To serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. little Coach's Corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back.